is promised it. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. It's a tale of two witch hunts, my friends. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here with me on Friday, a freestyle Friday at that, which means that as we make our way through the show, we will have some surprise and fascinating and varied guests. But first, the tale of two witch hunts. So you know about the Russia one, I'm sure, because it's been going on for quite some time. You have Jeff Sessions, attorney general, recusing himself from any investigation of the Trump administration and its ties to Russia. This, of course, is being taken as a huge victory uh, by the left. Uh, There is Meat in the water for the piranhas. There are more bites coming. It never stops. You do not get them to go away by giving them what they want, unfortunately. So they're going to keep pushing. They're going to push until they think they can get Sessions to resign. They will make his life miserable. The media will do what they can to ruin his reputation. They want him to resign. And there are so many stories about Russia ties now. Anybody who's ever met with a member of the Russian government, even if they're a member of the U.S. government in good standing that it's supposed to meet with the Russian government for the purposes of their job. That now is a question mark if you're a Republican, it seems. Anybody who has had to uh, chat with Ambassador Kizilyak, yes, Ambassador Kizilyak, good to meet you. Uh, But they're very upset about this in the media. They're telling us all now that There needs to be more. There needs to be a commission. There need to be special prosecutors. Has to be a huge investigation because this is a scandal akin to Watergate. Everything is the Flynn scandal, Watergate, this Watergate, everything with them is is Watergate. They they believe that that is for the media. That is the crowning achievement of the 20th century. Uh, Getting Richard Nixon to resign. Um, Not telling us really much of anything about Lyndon Johnson, for example, and all the electoral cheating that he did and what a vile human being he was. But they did get Richard Nixon to resign. So there's that. You got Nancy Pelosi dancing around talking about how this is so terrible. And she's slamming Sessions, of course, talking about his meeting with the Russians. 70, please. Everybody knew that there was a, a, a something completely out of order that was going on. So for him to say, well, I was just meeting with him, the normal course of a senator meeting with a, an ambassador, the Russian ambassador, who everybody knew was hacking our system, is beyond naive. It's almost pathetic. It's almost pathetic. Well, that's pretty harsh. Pelosi, pretty harsh. But, you know, Nancy, life comes at you pretty fast. She denied that she had met with Ambassador Kizilyak because people are now asking, well, do Democrats get to meet with the Russian ambassador? And is that okay? By the way, a great piece that's waiting out there for someone to write, maybe I should write it, would be all of the foreign meetings that Barack Obama had when he was running in 2008, because I'm sure there were a lot of them with all kinds of people all over the world. 
This is a guy who, didn't he give a speech in Germany in front of a bunch of big Greek columns, or am I am I hallucinating? I'm pretty sure that happened. But Pelosi, back to Pelosi. Oh, we're not letting Nancy escape this one. She's slamming Sessions for this, and she has, of course, now denied that she ever met with Ambassador Kizilyuk. Play clip 77. You've been in Congress a little bit, and you're in leadership. Have you ever met with a Russian ambassador? I'm not with this Russian ambassador, no. But uh, is there anything wrong? I mean, is it normal you know, to meet with ambassadors, or what? T- know, t- help us understand the process. Well, let's just say everything is about timing. Ah, okay. No, notice the little the little that's not with this ambassador. Oh, so this Russian ambassador bad, but other because Russia was great before this guy was the ambassador. Is that what we're supposed to believe? I thought Russia is this terrible menace. I thought we're all supposed to be. Up late at night because the Russian boogeyman is going to come for us. Hmm. Problem with Pelosi's denial is that there's already a photo out there of her hanging out with the Russian ambassador. So as I said, life comes at you pretty fast, Nancy. Sometimes you're just going to get caught up when you're telling those lies. But it doesn't really matter to them because, as I said, this is, by the way, this is just witch hunt number one. I haven't even gotten onto witch hunt number two. Uh, And... That is Mike Pence. Stories today picked up all across the Internet. I read them this morning. I couldn't believe it. And we'll get back to the Russia thing in a second, but I just want to put both of these in play so we can talk about how could it be any more obvious that they are just doing everything they can to take down the administration, to turn the American people against the administration. I do think that part of this is motivated by their fear that if tax reform happens, tax cuts If repeal of Obamacare happens, if securing the border and building a wall happens, the American people will like it. And then what are the Democrats going to say? Trump is a a Nazi. Trump is Hitler. He keeps doing these things that a majority of the American people like and that keeps all the American people safe and that improves the economy for all Americans. Oh, that's terrible. So they've got to stop him now. That's why there is an urgency in all of these efforts that's underway. That are underway. And you look at the Pence situation, and it's even more pathetic. Here's what they're saying about Mike Pence. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. The Indianapolis Star has a report out there that Pence had a used a private email server. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Private email account. Like a Gmail or an AOL or a Yahoo, which I'm sure all of us all of us have. You can't function really today unless you have an email account. So he had a private email account and used it for some professional business. Now, he had a lawyer that was working with him to make sure that for records request reasons, they would maintain all of these. They would keep them all. But here's the problem, or what they're posing as the problem. They're saying, well, how is this different from what Hillary Clinton did? And this, they can't be this stupid they really can't. I mean, uh, the press cannot be that dumb. This is on the front page of CNN.com right now that says no comparison whatsoever in quotes. There shouldn't be quotes around that because there is no comparison whatsoever. Clearly, they're quoting either Pence or one of his spokespersons. But it's obvious that there's no comparison. This is not, you know, uh, this is not an apples to apples comparison. It's not an apples to orange comparison. It's an apples to elephant uh, comparison. It's just crazy. It has nothing to do with anything. In the one case, you're talking about the storage and retention of classified information. In the other, 
There's no classified information. Pence doesn't. He's, he's a governor of Indiana. I mean, it, it may. I mean, if he saw any classified information in that capacity, I'd be shocked, and certainly not on a regular basis. He's definitely not writing about whatever classified he sees on his private server. It's not a part of his day-to-day life. A vast difference between the Secretary of State and the sensitivity level of the information she has and the governor of Indiana. I mean, no offense, Indiana, but, you know, it's not not exactly the the, the center of of the universe when it comes to conflict and counterterrorism. I'm sure you're happy about that. Point here being that the sensitivity level of the information was stuff like, quote, an update on the investigation in Columbus following vandalism to area churches. In another email, this is what the Indianapolis Star is is putting out there. And then people are, are raising this comparison between Hillary Clinton's, which also, by the way, was not just an email account. It was an email server, and it was set up very obviously and specifically to evade FOIA requirements. Pence had a system in place to comply with state records requests. And he really was talking about the equivalent of yoga and his daughter's wedding planning or whatever. I mean, that's what Hillary said she was doing, which, of course, was a lie. Uh, over 100 cases of classified, classified, not kind of sort of maybe classified information on her computer. Each instance is a federal crime. But they put out this comparison. You're seeing people say, well, is there is there a question mark? Is there a comparison? Why don't they just skip the pretense? I would like to see the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and others just say Trump and Pence equals Hitler, question mark. I mean, they're not saying. They're just asking questions. They're not coming out and accusing them of being Hitler-like. They're just, they want to know if you think they're Hitler-like. Oh, aren't they so clever? They're so smart, these media people. So the Pence comparison is is complete and utter nonsense. I mean, they, they say at one point in one of these pieces that I read, they said, oh, well, he is, um, <laughs> he was talking about security issues. And then you read down it, it's security issues like, the gate at the governor's mansion. I, I don't think I don't think any covert agents are going to lose their lives because somebody hacked into Pence's server or hacked into his email and saw the email about the gate at the governor's mansion. It's Indiana. I'm guessing it doesn't have a moat with alligators, dudes with laser guns everywhere, and helicopters flying overhead. I'm sure it's fine. So then you have to ask yourself why they why would they even pretend to have this just. Silly comparison. What is the... Oh, just to get Pence out there, to, to create the perception of a Pence scandal, too. To to have a a psychological momentum going here where everyone says, oh, it's going so badly. Oh, even Pence now, his email was hacked. Is that like Hillary Clinton? To put the White House on defense, to force their spokespersons or Trump or his Twitter account or all of the above to respond to this nonsense. But no serious person, certainly no serious journalist, could make any comparison between Hillary and and Pence's email situation. But another witch hunt. Another witch hunt. So they're going after Sessions for Russia. They're going after Pence for email. You'll notice that there's not much of a case being made by all of these Democrats and their allies in the media for why... Trump's plan on Obamacare, which I know is secret, and we'll get into that, or the Congress uh, congressional plan is still secret. We will dive into that in a few minutes. But this is the game plan, everyone. You're seeing it. A combination of lies, lawfare, and obstruction. 
That's what they're going to do. They'll lie to the American people about what's happening. They will sue. They will rely on the bureaucracy to dig in its heels, even in in ways that are unethical. And then they will, uh, and that's part of the obstruction. And then they'll turn around and say, see, this administration can't get things done. It is appalling. Both of these situations, I mean, the Russia case, I I read Politico had a a piece this morning, a soup to nuts or A to Z, whatever, alpha to omega rundown on everything you need to know about Trump's Russia connections. I learned nothing new. And as I read through it, all I could think was this is just flimsy. There's there's no there there. And the desperation to try to prove something is obvious when you have people who are now having to defend. Well, did, did you have you ever met with the Russian ambassador? Ambassadors meet with people all the time. When I was in D.C., I used to get invited to uh, invited to embassies for parties. There are some fun parties in D.C. at the embassies. If you like foreign ladies, it's a good place to hang out. And would you know if you're talking to a political officer, an AMBO, a, a deputy AMBO, a perhaps a foreign intelligence officer? You know, you don't know. This is what happens in D.C. There are these interactions. But keep in mind, behind all of this, I mean, the Pence thing is a joke. That's not going to last. But they just wanted to throw it out. They want to throw it against the wall, see if it would stick. It's not going to stick. But they're pathetic, so they'll try this. But with the Russia ties... The only way this is really a problem, the only way that we learn anything new from this investigation that's really worth knowing is if Donald Trump is an agent of the Kremlin or one of his top officials is an agent of the Kremlin. Why that would be the case, I can't even I can't even come up with a theory for you. Someone so compromised that they would do that, they would betray their country, they would engage in in treason. I I do want to have on and maybe we will next week. Uh maybe one of our friends who's a former prosecutor, what are the charges that are even conceivable here? But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right, phones are open. It is Freestyle Friday, which means that we're going to be bouncing all over the the topics and would love to hear from you at any point. 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with America Now is back right after the break. Buck Sexton back with you now. Uh, our our absolutely fantastic journalistic establishment is all over the Russia story. Ob- obviously, obvi, as the kids say, you know, on their Snapchat, which is now, as I see, is worth many, many billions of dollars and has IPO'd. I, who knew that putting a, a dog filter or like a pixie thing on your head was worth so much money. I don't understand Snapchat, but people like it. But um, the press is all over the Russia story, and they're, of course, analyzing with all of their depth and gravitas the Jeff Sessions recusal, including the one and only Don Lemon. He must—I bet he misses me. It's been a long time since I've been on that show. Uh, Where he—well, you can hear it for yourself. Play Clip 71. We have to remember, uh, Mark, that Loretta Lynch recused herself— from any decision regarding Hillary Clinton because of that meeting of Hillary Clinton and Loretta Lynch, who was attorney general Wrong. at the time, on the tarmac. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I forgot to guess it. Absolutely. Oh, man. No wonder they don't have me on that show anymore. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the recusal that never happened. Let's talk about how great it was. That recusal was great. Didn't happen. It's uh, completely false. Huge 
ethics uh, gap, huge ethics violation. Loretta Lynch obviously should have recused herself, but the fix was already in. They weren't going to charge Hillary because they weren't going to charge Hillary, full stop. But there are some out there who are fighting the good fight. Our friend Matt Schlapp, he of director of CPAC fame, I was on the show the week he was at CPAC. He was having a little chat with uh, MSNBC. I'm not sure which anchor, but they're all just like asking questions. Like they're just asking questions at MSNBC. Like the ladies over there are just, they just want to know. Like Russia is like scary. It's like so scary, Russia. Stop. Um, <laughs> Match Lap is throwing down. Let's play clip 65. To say, though, that the Trump campaign is now cleaning things up, it was Sean Spicer yesterday who said, there is nothing to see here, there is nothing to see here. And then it was the media that said, well, what about this meeting? What is to see here? Tell tell me, what is to see? I agree with you, these conversations and everything else, it would have been cleaner to get them out. But beyond that, what happened in those conversations that you're so worried about? Yeah. I want to understand more. Mike Flynn had to resign over this. No, he had to resign over the fact that he didn't, he wasn't forthcoming with the vice president that he might have discussed sanctions. Look, Matt now, actually remembers the newspapers and stuff. I want to know what are you concerned about that happening when an ambassador goes and talks to a senator? If a meeting took place during the transition with Jared Kushner, right. one of the president's closest advisors and son-in-laws, why didn't we know about that during transition when we all, when the president showed the whole world who was going in and out of Trump Tower, but the ambassador came in the back door? I, I want, Help me know why. I want to rewind this a little bit. Please. So all these ambassadors have had all the same conversations with the Hillary campaign and with and with key Democrats. It's what ambassadors do. Just because you have a meeting or a conversation, you can't make the leap that that person who had the meeting was somehow I don't rigging make, I don't want to make the okay. leap. So no, no, I no, she does, though. She wants to make the leap. Should we have a camera in every meeting that was in the transition so everyone sees every meeting? Um, look, Matt's totally right. This is They just have to start pushing on this issue. That This is now where this all has to go. What do you really think we're going to find out with all this Russia stuff? You, you think the Trump campaign colluded, uh, was a part of a massive international conspiracy with the Russian government? I mean, this is what they must think, because otherwise, who cares, right? Massive conspiracy with the Russian government to hack John Podesta's email account because they, one, would know what's in there, and two, would think that that would change the course of the election and get into the DNC emails and and the Trump people would expose themselves in that way, would make themselves vulnerable to the Russians exposing this at any point in the future if they wanted to all for what? So so they can win. They can win the election. Donald Trump's worth billions of dollars. If he lost the election, does anybody really think that it would have been the end of the world for him? I mean, he's going to take that risk. And also, it's not even a good plan. If you're going to be a traitor to your country and have a stealth coup by hacking this isn't even a particularly good way to go about it so but this, the question that matt's asking is the one that we all have to ask now which is what do they really think is happening here they should if they're going to ask questions we should ask questions i want an answer to that but they don't want to answer it we'll be right back buck sexton with america now where there's always something to talk about where you can trade opinions with buck not sure you'll win though just call 844-900-BUCK that's 844-900-2825 all right buck you're on
We've got our friend Vince Colonese on the line now. He is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief, top dog over at the Daily Caller. Go to thedailycaller.com to read their latest. Mr. Colonese, good to have you, sir. What's up? The great Buck Sexton. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you very much. I feel like that should be my official name. I should do like a legal name change, the great Buck Sexton. I like that. I like that. Although it does make me sound like either a wizard or a magician. I'll take either, though. I I, pre- I can appreciate that. You know, in, in radio, it's always nice to have somebody say something really nice about you on the air because then you can use it like in a drop. So I feel like I, I, I really want to be a part of that at some point. Like say something like, the first and the last word in everything you hear in politics news, Buck Sexton. I just like keep on saying stuff like that until eventually I end up in a We're court. recording this, right? Because I might want to have to, yeah, we might have to. I feel like we could end the interview right now, Vince. That was great. <laughs> great stuff. Great job, buddy. No, no. All right, let's get into the No, I'm saying that was very helpful. I appreciate it. Um, you're welcome. You're, you're the man. Uh, but let's let's not tell anybody that you're you're intentionally saying awesome things about me in air. Let's pretend it's just happening. So let's go to the latest on the Daily Caller, uh, Ambassador Sergei Kizilyak. He visited the Obama White House at least 15 times, according to the Daily Caller. But I thought Russia was, like, super evil and scary, man. Oh, they're the worst. Well, they, this guy is like a social butterfly. He's all over the place. And, you know, we've spent so much time in the last, I don't know, months thinking about, well, how often does the Trump campaign speak to the Russians? How often have they been intertwined? How often have they communicated about anything? And it just so happens when you have a person who acts in the law as an ambassador to a country, that person often communicates with the people who lead that country. So, uh, we thought it was an interesting data point. But like, well, let's just point out the obvious, that 22 times in the White House visitor's logs for the Obama administration that the ambassador, uh, the, the ambassador from Russia to the United States showed up. He's there all the time. And this is the guy who's at the center of all of this controversy of, oh, my God, he was talking to Trump people. Well, of course, because those very Trump people, they were destined to lead the country. And in the case of Senator Jeff Sessions, he was a leader in the country. I mean, he was a U.S. senator. It's fully fully within bounds for a U.S. senator to be talking to a Russian ambassador. So um, we thought it was a great little data point. And, you know, he was there as late as fall of last year with a cadre of other Russian-named people, like five other guys, all visiting the White House. So, yeah, yeah, and of course the photos, there's Nancy Pelosi uh, with the Russian ambassador has turned up. You've got Chuck Schumer with Putin himself back in 2004 eating a Krispy Kreme donut, uh, no less. So uh, so there's that. Um, and, oh, also, I don't know if you saw this little snarky aside, but somebody reported on how recently at the Russian embassy's D.C. parties, uh, they, there's a lot of grandeur, pomp, and circumstance, but they're serving uh, Costco brand vodka at the parties. People said maybe that's a sign of Russian economic trouble. Did you see that? I, I thought, love that. Yeah. I did see that. And by the way, I've heard some rave reviews of, of Costco brand vodka, and it turns out it's actually pretty good, apparently. But by the way, vodka is like the last stop on the way to alcoholism. Like when you decide that vodka is the one drink that you're going to be committing to all the time, that's a clear sign that somebody needs to intervene in your life, right? So uh, I think it's, it's, you got to watch the vodka. And if you're buying it at Costco-level quantities, there's a real problem, or you're the Russian opposite. I take the Ron Swanson line on this as a tequila drinker, that uh, clear liquors are for rich women on diets. That's what Ron Swanson says. So <laughs> let's go to, um, okay, we're switching gears here into something something pretty intense and serious. So hard turn, everybody, with Vince for a second. But I want him to update us on the uh, Juan. T- oh, actually, before we go into the latest on the investigation, 
Do we have the people from the press talking about uh, pushing Trump on anti-Semitism? Do we have a clip about that or am I crazy? No, we, we do not. All right. Well, it was a thing that happened a lot as we. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. 76. Clip 76. Go. Mr. President, um, since your election campaign and uh, even after your victory, uh, we've seen a sharp rise in uh, anti-Semitic um, um, anti-Semitic incident across the United States. And I wonder what do you say to those among the Jewish community in the States and in Israel and maybe around the world who believe and feel that your administration is playing with xenophobia and maybe racist tones. We're talking about a rise in anti-Semitism around the country, some of it by supporters in your name. What can you and, do? And some of it, and can I be honest with you, and this has to do with racism and horrible things that are put up, some of it written by our opponents. You do know that. Do you understand that? You don't think anybody would do a thing like that. Some of the signs you'll see are not put up by the people that love or like Donald Trump. They're put up by the other side. You got people that are essentially mocking the administration and mocking Trump when he says that, that there are false flags, that there are people that are at the rallies that are not Trump supporters with signs. Uh, I, I believe that that, is, that that has happened, but I, I also know that it was far too convenient for the anti-Trump uh, opposition that all of a sudden there are these threats to Jewish centers across the country, and they're immediately by the media tied to Trump and the climate. And we find out Juan Thompson is the first person to be arrested for making multiple threats to Jewish centers, and he is a former writer for a far left uh, far left wing website he's a bernie sanders supporter he is african american he is a communist uh what am i missing oh oh he's not a trump supporter that i do know yeah he's right at central casting actually for trump supporters um no of course not and i you know we've seen time and time again hoaxes perpetrated in order to make like a like supposed right wingers look bad and it tends to be left wingers who are are agitating and committing you know, these forms of violence or these threats, and, um, and and this happens far too often. By the way, I do think that this adds to the further evidence. I heard somebody else say this today, further evidence that Donald Trump owns a time machine because he's, like, constantly able to, like, see these things before they actually happen, and then they happen. I just so, had—I don't know if you have, if you know uh, David Ifun. If you don't, I should. you guys should, uh, should grab a coffee. He's a great guy. He's the editor-in-chief of, Al- of the Algaminer. Uh, which is the largest uh, uh, Jewish newspaper, fastest growing Jewish newspaper, I should say, in this country. And he uh, we're talking about this issue. He follows it very closely. And we're both like, look, uh, there's there's nothing to tie these threats to Trump. And the fact that the media, before there's anything to tie it to Trump, just automatically yeah. jumps to that conclusion, in fact, makes the whole thing more suspicious, that it makes me less inclined to believe that it was Trump supporters. This is a great case study in the way the press treats everything Donald Trump does, which is the press, and you and I have talked about this at length, has a responsibility to be critical of people who are in power. But the presumption on the part of Donald Trump is always a presumption of guilt, not a presumption of, of just needing to be uh, vetted, right? So for the press, he's always presumed guilt when it comes to Donald Trump. And Trump, the only thing he could have said um, that, that would have satisfied his liberal critics would be, my own supporters are anti-Semites. And I disavow my own support. That's what they were looking for. And of course, he's not going to say anything like that. He, especially, and but the press just has this fever dream where they think that there's all this like anti-Semitism emanating out of that Donald Trump is responsible for, by the way, in their eyes. And yet, time and again, we're seeing it has nothing to do with Donald Trump supporters at all. And in this case, it was the furthest thing from one. It was an anti-Trump communist 
who worked for The Intercept and um, who got fired, actually, for fabricating stories. So could it be any more perfect for Donald Trump? Literally, a reporter who was anti-Trump, who manufactured fake news, was the person who was threatening Jewish centers with bomb threats? I mean, really? And I also want to point out that there's no real change in tone from the press even after this has come out. Now they're saying, well, he's not responsible for all the threats. Okay, so there are are other (laughs) bad people out there. But given that the first one here, and actually when you you read in this guy's story, it seems like like he's actually... uh, might might be mentally ill. I mean, it seems like this guy has had a break with, with reality. But there are other bad people out there doing bad things. Can we just not assume that they're necessarily Trump supporters and, until we know something about them, other than the fact that there are threats to, to uh, Jewish centers? I don't. I think, but the press won't do that, of course. It's still, well, no. the other ones, the tone you get now is, well, the other ones are clearly Trump supporters. Oh, okay, there's no confirmation bias at work here at all. No, we're going to spend more time on president trump's culpability here than we are in the actual suspect so i don't i mean that's just the way that the press has treated the trump administration and i don't expect that'll change anything. yeah definitely not uh vince colonese is the daily caller's editor-in-chief dailycaller.com is where you want to go for all of their stories they do great stuff uh vince i need you to walk us through because one of your guys uh one of your uh, investigative reporters broke this um pakistani suspects in house it probe received four million from dem reps what tell what is this story? Because I even, I was reading, I was like, how does this happen, and what is going on? Well, first off, um, thank you for mentioning Luke Rosiak, who's done just tremendous work at the Daily Caller News Foundation in this investigation, has written some half dozen stories already on the subject, and all of them are neatly bound at the bottom of each piece, so you can go and read all of them. But the con- the core concept is this: House Democrats all sort of hired the same IT family, literally family. Of, of brothers to manage um, IT concerns in their offices, and this gave these Pakistani, uh, this Pakistani family, full access to all of their emails and their IT infrastructure. And they're now under that family is now under criminal investigation by Capitol Police for, um, in part, removing hardware from the Capitol that they shouldn't have. And in rapid succession, all of these Democratic offices had to fire these IT guys, to whom they've paid. Um, uh, uh, over four million dollars, Luke discovered, which is you know a lot of money, and uh, I, so there's all sorts of things involved, including information vulnerability, especially among Democrats. The fact that they just gave that these people full access to their information, and yet now they're under criminal investigation. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be developed there. Um, Luke, of course, is following it very closely. But as we continue to debate whether or not Russia had some impact on an election by sending out phishing emails and tricking John Podesta into giving up his password, inside the Democrats' own offices in the U.S. House of Representatives, they had an entire family of guys that they were paying who were take or using their information in a way that has now gotten them in trouble to the point that they're under criminal investigation. This would seem to be a much more interesting and important story to me, and I would think to anybody, than, say, Mike Pence's email getting fished and there being the exposure of that email about a rogue squirrel up in the Capitol building attic or something that was bothering him in Indiana. Like, who cares? The the emails the Indianapolis Star was running, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> there was literally one about the fence at the governor's mansion. They're like a security matter. Oh, wow. You know, was, was, yeah. was, was Bob the security guard f- five minutes late to his post at the governor's mansion? Like, this is a national security issue. It's crazy. Well, Buck, have you noticed how many, like, half-baked stories 
we discuss now in the age of Trump versus when we what we did in the age of Obama. So during the Obama administration, any story that was semi-critical of the president or semi-skeptical of the president, if it didn't include like the full completion of every single known detail that could possibly come to fruition, then the story was always called into question as well. This is just circumstantial. This is by association. This doesn't represent anything to hold against President Obama. Yet with President Trump, Every single story, no matter how developed it is, if it even has an inkling of information that, that could be perceived as damaging him, it's taken through the full – it's taken all the way. When, I, mean, when, I, was, when I was over at CNN, Vince, uh, talking about Hillary's emails, and I'd, I'm somebody who had, who had spent years handling classified information, and, and I had a TS clearance, and I would say things like, there's no way – if that was her main and only email system, there's no way she doesn't have classified on there. And if she does, it's a crime. And they'd bring on other commentators who had never had a clearance who would say, well, uh, you, know, you, you don't know that. And the anchor would be like, yeah, Buck, you don't know. Actually, I do. <laughs> this, right. But that, that was how set in the, in the Hillary camp things were with Trump. They're running out with these, as you, as you, as you point out, these embarrassing stories. And, I mean, the Pence email, there's no compa- there is no comparison whatsoever and that anybody would even try is, is a joke. But, Vince, we're going to run into the next hour if I don't uh, break it here. Vince Colonese is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief, dailycaller.com, for all of their latest. Vince, have a great weekend. Thanks for hanging out in the hut. You too. Thanks a lot, bud. Team, hit a break. 844-900-2825. Freestyle Friday continues in just a few. Got a lot of calls. Lighten it up here in the Freedom Hut team, Buck. Thank you for that. Let's uh, let's knock them down. Michael in North Carolina, WPTI. What's up, Michael? Hey, not much, Buck. Love listening to you, by the way. You're doing a good job. Uh, good work. Thank you, sir. Appreciate uh, I that. Before, I want to say something before I get started, and that's this diplomacy doesn't start without communication. So at some point or another, Trump does need to speak to Russia. At some point or another, the media needs to lose their fascination with him speaking to Russia. I understand their whole conspiracy theory, but I didn't hear them at one time back in 2011 when there was an audio recording, a video and audio recording of Obama sitting with, uh, I'm not sure if it was a diplomat, ambassador, prime minister, but it was a Russian official. Medvedev. Uh, I, I will, I will, uh, tr- I will transmit this to Vladimir. That's what he that's said. Correct. Yeah. I, See, yeah. I, I'm a one-man yeah. audio player. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, I didn't hear, and I, I still don't hear the media bringing that up very much. I mean, that was massive, and I thought, I, I thought for sure back then there would be a story of that because. You know, the whole Crimea thing that happened shortly after that, it's almost like he was complicit in it. But yet there's no there's no substance with that. It's like, OK, well, him and, and Hillary with her whole deal with the, what was it, uh, Uranium One or or whichever with the 20 percent of our uranium that was contracted to Russia. Uh, you know, all these all these Democratic Russian connections aren't really being mentioned. Oh, you mean um, you mean like when Hillary was Secretary of State and her husband got paid five hundred thousand dollars for one speech by a Russian bank, which means the Russian state more or less, because Russian states own the Russian banks, yep. paid a half million bucks for a speech. I mean, that must have been one heck of a speech. Must have been good. Oh yeah, not 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 to mention, and and there's still some some information to be gathered on this. There was a Senate. Or congressional hearing, excuse me, congressional hearing on this. Keep in mind that, the, uh, that, that Democrat Democrat federal prosecutors wanted to uh, lock up Bob McDonnell and his wife 
because his wife got $150,000 in loans and gifts from a businessman in Virginia, and no official favor was done. Meanwhile, Hillary is Secretary of State, and her husband is getting paid a half a million dollars a speech by foreign countries, including Russia, which is a foreign adversary in geopolitics, and nobody even bats an eyelash. It's like, yay, Bill's speeches are just great. Who wouldn't pay a half million dollars for him? I don't think he's going to get a half million bucks anymore, I'll tell you that. No, and it's bribery at the highest level. Oh, I yeah. don't know why there weren't corruption charges brought down for that. You, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, Michael, it, it all ties in, too, right? People look at this now and they say, oh, so we're supposed to be so outraged over Jeff Sessions speaking twice to the Russian ambassador once in a completely off-the-cuff kind of you know chance setting, and we're supposed to be so outraged about that. Meanwhile, their candidate was running a giant as you pointed out, a giant global bribery scheme, selling influence at the very highest yeah. level to foreign governments while she was Secretary of State, full stop. And they want us to be outraged about Jeff Sessions being like, you know, hey, what's up, Kizzle Yak? Let's chat. I mean, just not going to happen. It's just not, we're just, I just can't, uh-huh. I can't summon the outrage. I can't do it. Michael Shields, hi, man. Thank you for calling in from uh, North Carolina. I want to say one last thing. Real oh, quick. okay, quick. We got, we got, we're about to live. What? When uh, the, the Supreme Court justice was being elected and Jeff Sessions was on stand. I listened to that man for a, a few weeks there, and I had actually hoped that he would be running for president under this last election, but I'm glad Trump did win. I think it's ridiculous that they're going after him. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Uh, guys, it's Freestyle Friday, which means that we're going to be bouncing around from current events to just interesting topics that are in the news. Uh, and I want to give you a, a taste of some different things this uh, this afternoon this evening so we're going to talk about space coming up and space exploration the spacex program the private sector taking people into outer space the moon all that good stuff so team buck we are going to boldly go where the team has never gone before stay with me buck sexton with america now where there's always something to talk about where you can trade opinions with buck not sure you'll win though just call 844-900-BUCK that's 844-900-2825 all right buck you're on welcome back team space is in the news so let's talk about it for freestyle friday The report out of Fox News, SpaceX could beat NASA back to the moon. Well, this sounds interesting. We should have somebody who's an expert on the subject join us. Oh, we've got one, Phil Larson. He was a senior advisor for space and innovation at the White House. He's previously worked for Elon Musk's SpaceX team, where he collaborated with the FAA, NASA, DOD, uh, U.S. industry, and foreign entities on SpaceX launch campaigns. He also helped roll out a Mars partnership with NASA. Uh, fantastic stuff. Phil, thank you for calling in. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Buck. All right, so let's talk about it. SpaceX is planning to do what, and it could get to get to the moon faster than NASA? This is crazy. Well, it's important to point out, of course, NASA's already been there uh, a bunch of times in the 60s and 70s. So what's unique about this mission, uh, and it's a particularly opportune moment, I think, for SpaceX to announce something like this as a new administration you know, grapples with their plans for NASA. 
what's exciting about it is it's a new way of doing business. You know, SpaceX uh, has grown be, do, much uh, due in part because of their partnership with NASA. Uh, one of the things we worked on, uh, you know, in the in the Obama administration was partnering NASA with these private companies, basically to get more bang for the taxpayer buck. Uh, and that's what we're seeing uh, with SpaceX, with other companies like Boeing, uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, uh, you know, Virgin Galactic with Richard Branson. You know, the private sector is awesome at taking the ball and running with it uh, and innovating and, and doing things, you know, faster and better uh, and more cost effectively. And so that's that's what this announcement kind of, you know, shows. ABC News reporting that SpaceX might fly two paying customers to the moon next year. Yeah, that's right. That's the announcement is the goal is to launch uh, two privately paying customers uh, on a privately funded rocket in space. Do we know what that will cost, by the way? Is that publicized? It's it's not publicized. You know, Elon, I think, talked about, um, you know, the two folks aren't ready to talk about who's going. They're going to start training soon. I'm but guessing it's very expensive. And what kind of training is involved? Well, you'll have to, you know, you're going to be in a and basically an SUV-sized spacecraft for five to ten days as you swing around the moon. It's kind of like the Apollo 8 mission uh, that happened in, in 1968. You're basically launching, traversing, you know, three or four days, swinging around the moon, coming back. And if you look at the launch prices on SpaceX's website, you know, a launch of a Falcon Heavy rocket, which is the big version of their Falcon 9 that will be used for this mission, is about 90 you know, 90 to $100 million. Add on to that the cost of the spacecraft. I think you're looking at, you know, about $100 million, $150 million per seat. Wow. <laughs> that is that is an expensive ticket for sure. Uh, okay. So they might get people as soon as next year up to the moon. I think a lot of people will, I mean, you probably deal with this question and you dealt with it in your former capacity as a White House advisor on uh, on space travel, um, what do we get out of this? I mean, we talk about NASA and federal funding for the space program. Sure. It obviously was a, a a huge accomplishment. And as you put it out, we've been to the moon numerous times. We've got ro- rovers going to Mars. People are talking about uh, having long-term colonies on Mars or at least some sort of a space station where people could live off in, off in the future. What do we get from all of this? I mean, should we be spending billions and billions of dollars on space travel or should we leave it all to the private sector? I think it's the common it's a combination of both. I think we definitely need to spend taxpayer money on something that other countries are doing, including, you know, Russia and China uh, and others. And that's, you know, NASA was born out of the Cold War and it was a, definitely a race to the moon to show we could do it, but it was because we wanted to show we had the technological capabilities that no other nation had. And so I think it's still for surely in the nation's strategic interest to have great skills and capabilities and flexibility in space. You know, you and I and everybody listening are so dependent upon space today, and we don't even know it. You know, communication satellites, environmental uh, weather satellites, uh, also national security assets in space. So I think it's critical that we continue to do stuff in space. And then, you know, there's economic benefits. If you like jobs, you like high, you're attracting high quality, good paying. Yes, jobs. I like jobs. You're, you're definitely. In the United States, you should care about space and aerospace and technological, uh, you know, jobs. And that's what this, that's what the space program does. And 
you know, now we're in this new era where like NASA can act as kind of a venture capitalist to not spend as much money maybe as they did before on building and owning rockets and space shuttles themselves, but really seeding private industry uh, to do that. And then you're getting more bang for the buck. You, you expand your capabilities in space. How far are we from, from something like the movie The Martian with Matt Damon where you can live for at least a time on Mars? How many years out is that? I'd say it's it's definitely within our lifetime. Uh, I'd say, you know, 15, 20, 25 years is not a stretch to say that's possible. And that and it will, will be a combination of commercial, government, and I think international partners to do that. Favorite space movie all time, Phil, is what? It's got to be Independence Day. Wow. What other one is there? It's not... Wow. Okay. The just you know the crew here is cheering you. Independence yeah. Day. I okay. The first one, obviously, Welcome not the second Earth, one. Man. I don't think anyone saw the second one. <laughs> second one was okay. Uh, just okay. All right. Fair enough. Phil Larson uh, was a senior advisor for space and innovation at the White House. He is at Philip Larson on Twitter. Uh, Phil, appreciate you joining to teach us a bit about space. Thanks for calling in. My pleasure, Buck. Thanks. All right, Team Buck. Gonna hit a break, take your calls on the flip side, and talk about a whole lot more. Stay with me. I'm getting a little worried about these Republicans and the Obamacare repeal. It's funny, the second I say this to you, I see on the monitors uh, Rand Paul popping up on Fox News, but uh, he's he's making some very worthwhile points in the last couple of days on this. Why is this not, first of all, already happening? They're working out the details. What have we been paying these Republicans in the House and the Senate to do for the last, oh, four or five years or so? What is going on here? And Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, is asking that very question. Play clip 73. We did compromise about a year ago. We all came together and we voted for about as complete a repeal as you can kind of get under those rules that we have to deal with. So we were unified. Every Republican, save one in the Senate, voted for this repeal. And I think every Republican in the House voted for it. So the simple way to get this done, we can get this done today. And I've told the president this, I've told the vice president this, I've told everybody at the White House this, if you want to get it done, vote on what we've already voted on and vote on replacement separately, and we can have a debate over what goes into replacement. But the thing is, repeal needs to be complete repeal, okay. because if you do partial repeal, I think the situation gets worse. Why did they vote? I mean, let's just take a step back here for a second. This is health care. This matters to all of us. Why did they vote on repeal? And now we're being told, well, that well, that was just that was just for show. They weren't serious. It wasn't. Well, this is if we could get this through today, we would do it. They they voted for repeal. They knew it couldn't get through, and now they have an opportunity to get it through. And they're saying, well, hold on, hold on. Now, now we've got to now we got to take this seriously. Uh not good, everybody. This this is not confidence inspiring about this Republican Congress, and they. You know, it's like a lot of stuff we've seen in recent years where Republicans are, you know, whether it's, you know, telling us that they're going to repeal Obamacare, they're going to uh, crack down on immigration. They say these things that appeal to the base. Obamacare has been a huge one, though. And, you know, you got I remember, I remember years ago, John McCain build the dang fence. Uh, I don't think he'd be talking about building the dang fence now. I don't think that's what he's I don't think that's his position, but he was trying to win. 
So that was the ad he was running back in 2008. I know he was a senator running for president, but these senators who are running for Senate, they play games. They realize what's popular with the base, and so they say it to get elected. Now they're in a place where they can actually do something. And we're getting a lot of like, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know about that. You're like, wait, hold on a second. What do you mean you don't? Yeah. Well, it's really complicated, you know? It's a lot of moving pieces. It's complicated. I thought you guys have been working out these complicated moving pieces for years now. So if re- they've been running on repeal. Repeal shouldn't be that hard. Replace may be more difficult, but they can repeat. They could sign it. Uh, they could sign in, a, or the president signs it, obviously, but they could pass a repeal that is phased over time and then put the replacement in. But this is not, there's something not right here. Um, and and it's tough for me to put my finger on exactly what it is because they're hiding this thing. Rand Paul, this is reported up on CNN. Uh, Senator Paul was running around the Capitol building saying, quote, this should be an open and transparent process about about the Obamacare bill. This is being presented as if it were a national secret, as if it were the plot to invade another country, as if this were national security. That's wrong. Um, so he is demanding he's been demanding to see the obamacare repeal bill and i can understand why he would want to and especially senators who have been making a big case about this for a long time now they're going to look really silly if all of a sudden we're being told well we're just repealing parts of it that was not the promise it wasn't repeal a little bit and then replace one day and then maybe repeal a little more and then replace a little more it was repeal and replace Make it as if Obamacare never existed. That's what we were told. Now, as part of repeal, maybe they expand or rather they keep the Medicaid expansions in place. But as we talked to Ovik Roy about last night, that's just a political concession. That's you don't want to take away or people that are running for office in certain states don't want to take away what is just an expansion of a welfare program because of the votes that they will likely lose. That's what that is. That has that's nothing to do with, oh, repeal and replace is so complicated. Well, it's complicated depending on what your goal is. If your goal is to just get rid of this law, this multiple thousand pages of law, whatever the final tally ended up being, and then come up with a new health care form. You know, I, I read a I think it was a Washington Post reporter in a in a, a, a snarky little exchange out there for the world to see saying that. Well, you know, the states already there already is interstate competition between the states. It's allowed under Obamacare, and uh, and I read into this, and I I read the relevant sections of the of the bill because I was like, well, hold on a second. Well, what is this? How do, how is that supposed to work? Uh, and the way that works is that states could theoretically allow you to buy, like New York State could allow you to buy insurance from Texas, but no state has yet done that. And that's in part because the states all set their own baseline of what has to be covered, and they're not doing it. But the purpose of allowing interstate competition for healthcare purchases is not so that states can work with each other. It's so that people can just buy what they want to buy. And if states have to allow you to do that and make agreements with other states, that is not interstate. <laughs> that is not interstate commerce. That is state-to-state commerce. That that's not the individual being in charge of where the dollars go. So there's a lot of misinformation out there about what the bill currently is and what the 
uh, realities of it are. I thought the most interesting part of our discussion last night on Obamacare was that if you reform the individual market and make it see right now, the way it's set up is that the individual market is the forgotten stepchild of the healthcare market because everyone's so used to getting it because of the tax benefits through their employer. That's how most of us get our insurance. But then when you lose your job or you have a gap in coverage and then you have pre-existing conditions, big problems can result from this. And so the individual market, you have very few options. Uh, they're overpriced and bad plans. They're also not subsidized as your employer-provided plan would be, and the tax treatment is different. But if you were to make, and I was thinking about this as, as we're talking about it last night with Ovik Roy, if you were to make the individual market really competitive and solid and good, and you could just read the same way that those of you have home insurance or renter's insurance or car insurance, any of that, you look at your contract, what's covered, what's not, what do you pay, and that's it. You eliminate all these games. You know, Right now, the system is intentionally opaque because insurers are constantly trying to find ways to protect their bottom line. People all want to believe someone else is going to pay for their health care, and it just is, it's just this big merry-go-round of cost-shifting. If you were able to buy a plan that was a good plan that covered you and that you didn't have to worry when you went on to your next job or if you went through a period of unemployment because you knew what your plan was, you could budget for your expenses, you had an understanding of what you're in, and you had access to doctors that you wanted to see, this would make everything better. Maybe you want to keep your insurer-provided or your uh, employer-provided plan. Maybe you don't. Maybe you decide you're going to become one of those people that's in a much better, much more uh, competitive individual healthcare marketplace. Right now, the healthcare, the individual marketplace is small and bad. And if you have Obamacare, maybe if you had nothing before, maybe you think this is good. But if you are somebody who now has to buy insurance, who didn't want to buy it before, you are most likely very unhappy because you're paying a lot of money for very narrow networks and substandard care. And you're stuck because the government's saying you have to buy. You don't even have a choice. Let's take Kendall in Virginia on WPTI. Kendall, thanks for calling in. Hey, Buck, I uh, like your show. I appreciate uh, you being on and enlightening people. Um, Thank you, sir. I just wanted to get, I just wanted to uh, hone in on this. Before Obamacare, um, I work in Carolina. Before Obamacare, um, I had group insurance through my employer, and for family coverage, I paid about 160 a week. Which seemed high, but I had good insurance. But since Obamacare, um, last year I got fined because I didn't have all my kids covered on the insurance. So I added them this year, and I'm a single parent. My insurance, when I added the kids, went from 150 a week on myself. And adding the kids, I now pay 500 a week insurance. That is expensive. Uh, 1800 Eighteen hundred dollar deductible before they'll pay a copay or anything, medicine or anything. And so you're, you're paying you're paying two thousand dollars. You're paying two thousand dollars a month, Kendall, and you have an eighteen hundred dollar deductible on top of that before you start to see any benefits from this this plan. And this is an Obamacare plan. No, this is a group plan. Oh, there's a group plan. Okay. Which my employer is uh, a big company and works in over 150 countries in the world it's a big company so you think they'd have you know pretty good group insurance but 
my sister, she got an Obamacare policy this year, and I don't know which one it is, but she's paying uh, less. She pays um, somewhere around 180 a week or somewhere around there, but she has a $6,900 deductible before anything is paid on hers. So I'm just wondering, they keep talking about all these people that had gotten insurance that couldn't get it before and how it's helping everybody. But between me barely making it because I have $500 insurance a week and her having insurance she's paying for that she pretty much cannot use, I don't see how it, who is it benefiting? It benefit. I can tell you, Kendall, it be, and and I totally understand your frustrations, and and it's it's very, uh, it's very difficult when when there's these costs keep going up all the time, and you're getting less and less care for the money you're paying, uh, because you know access coverage is not the same as care, which is very important to keep in mind. The people who are benefiting from Obamacare are either those who are part of the Medicaid expansion, which just means that they are now covered under what is a it's healthcare welfare. Uh, or those who are able to get a plan now who weren't before because the pre-existing conditions clause was removed and they are either very sick or got very sick and their catastrophic coverage kicked in. But for people that are reasonably healthy and that have been paying their own health care bills and that are in the individual market, it's a disaster. Uh, and that's and that's going to be what it is for everybody else, too, when it expands beyond the individual market. Kendall in Virginia, Shields High, thank you for uh, calling in, sharing your story. I appreciate it. So, team, uh, we got another Freestyle Friday guest coming up here. It's going to be a bit of a surprise. Whoa, surprise. If you want to call in, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Back right after this break. Buck is back. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Today is World Wildlife Day, everybody. And while I'd love to sit here and talk to you about how my favorite uh, animal at the zoo in D.C. was not, in fact, the panda, but I was more of a pygmy hippo guy. I always thought the pygmy hippo was the coolest. Uh, I want to talk to you about an article that I saw earlier in the week about the, quote, terrifying prognos- uh, prognosis for life on Earth. It said that half of all animals on Earth will be extinct by the end of the century. Is this alarmist, or are we actually heading for major species die-off? We are joined by somebody who can answer that question for us in detail, Dr. Tony Barnowski. He's the executive director of Stanford University's Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve, and he's the author of Dodging Extinction, Power, Food, Money, and the Future of Life on Earth. Uh, Dr. Barnowski, thank you for calling in. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, All right, so this article says, half of all animals on Earth will be extinct by the end of the century. One in five are already at risk. Is that at the more alarming end of the spectrum, or is that really where we're heading? That, That is really where we're heading, and it's very alarming. We actually know that 50% of the world's wildlife has already disappeared in the last 40 years. And if we keep up that pace, that is where the number that you just read comes from. I've heard that, uh, I've read, I should say, that that if you were to look, though, at all species throughout uh, our planet's existence, that the current number of species is is a tiny fraction of all that have existed in, in the past. People try to say that 
There are you know, species that are still being discovered. Uh, is, is, is something remarkably different? I mean, I'm assuming this is going to be where I hear about how human beings, habitat loss, is that what's called hunting, overfishing? What's causing this? Yeah, so if we compare the rates of extinction going on now to what the normal uh, birth death rate of species is, it's about 50 to 100 times too fast. And extinction rates haven't been that fast since the dinosaurs went extinct. And what's causing it is exactly what you said. We've converted 50% or more of the planet's land for our use rather than for other species. Uh, we've been um, poaching elephants, rhinos, uh, big cats, and so on for monetary gain, um, international markets for illegal wildlife trade. Um, and then the, the third thing going on is climate change, which is at a pace into a place where uh, living species today have never never witnessed. And you wrote a book also called Tipping Point for Planet Earth. How close are we to the edge? Is that what what's what is the thesis? Of, I just see that here in your mm -hmm. in your bio. Yeah. What, what is the what is the tipping point? What are we approaching? Yeah. So 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 the tipping point we were writing about in that uh, part of it had to do with the um, uh, the harm we're doing to Earth's natural resources that we depend upon. Uh, part of it had to do with the way societies operate today. And sort of the bottom line of that book is if we keep, think, keep doing things exactly as we have in the past, the things that we don't like on the planet are going to get much more frequent, i.e. conflicts, migration crisis, loss of species. Uh, if we take a step back and say, um, while these things really are on the horizon, let's plan for the future. We can actually make a very nice world. Is is this a, a rallying cry then for sustainability? What what is the what are the answers then? I mean, you're telling me that half of uh, you, you agree that half of all animals on Earth by the end of this century, which is not that far away, mm -hmm. uh, could be extinct. We do what if we want to turn that around? I mean, aren't there some examples of conservation efforts? You mentioned specifically some large uh, large animals in Africa. Uh, that have been poached almost out of existence, but haven't they done a pretty good job of bringing some of them back? I mean, there, there is hope here, I would think. There, there absolutely is hope. And the key caveat, as I said, if we keep doing things exactly as we have. Now, now when we say half the animals on Earth will be gone uh, in, in the next 50 years or, or, or so, we don't mean that half the species on Earth will be dead. We mean that the... Uh, numbers of individuals within those species will be cut by half again, over and above the half that's already been cut. And you can see if you keep going into the future, cutting half every 50 years, it's not very long before you do see a lot of extinctions. So the point is, most of the species we want to save are still out here on the planet. Um, in order to save them, we have to think about nature in a different way, and we have to use uh, the planet in a different way than we have, which is 100% uh, possible to do, I can give you three things that would help a lot. Sure. Give me the three. Sure. So, so, so the first thing is we've got 7.4 billion people on the planet. Now we know we're going to have a minimum of, uh, excuse me on that, uh, we're going to have <laughs> a minimum of um, about... 9 to 10 billion by 2050 by any demographic projection. So that's the reality we have to deal with. Um, if we shoot much past that point, then things really are dire, and we can look at the sixth mass extinction. 
Um, so uh, solving that population growth problem, which actually comes down to something that's very good uh, economically and boils down to uh, providing educational opportunities for, particularly for women in parts of the world where they don't have them. Second thing, treat, treating nature right now as this inexhaustible um, checking account. So that's why we have over-exploitation of elephants, rhinos, so on, uh, illegal wildlife trade. Um, there are policies we can put in place that will treat nature more as uh, a long-term investment account where we're living off the interest. And then the third thing is um, mitigating climate change is really, really important because uh, species are just getting crunched out of existence because they're, the climate that they are adapted to live on in is disappearing. But wouldn't that wouldn't some species be better off if I mean if it gets warmer in some places or colder in some places don't animals have different preferences for different why would that necessarily affect them? Yeah, so that's a very good point, and uh, the, we, we know that what's happened in the past when climate has changed, although it, it hasn't changed as fast or, or to the place it's going, um, but we know when we have seen climate change in the past that animals adapt primarily by moving around. They can't do that now because, as I said, we have turned 50% of the planet into human-dominated landscapes. So, you know, if they try to move from point A to point B, even if they can move that fast, a city gets in the way. Dr. Tony Bernowski is executive director of Stanford University's Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve. He's also an author. You can check out his books up on uh, Amazon. And, uh, Doctor, uh, appreciate you calling in. Okay, very much. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you, sir. Uh, team phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. Uh, I, I, I know some of you are probably like, he's talking about climate change. I don't, I don't want to get into a climate It's a Friday. I want to get into a climate change fight. I just, I don't want to, I don't, you know, and, you know, it's just not, you know, the doctor is going to say, I'm a scientist. You're not. I'm going to say, yeah, but you guys are always wrong with your climate change predictions and things will get contentious and also on the species die-off issue, I want to say, well, you know, we're a tiny fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of species that have ever existed exists right now. So, you know, what, what does that mean? And uh, But I'm really more on the climate change issue. I, I don't understand. I mean, so if you have, well, I'm not going to argue with the air now. But anyway, I, I invite guests on here. I try to be polite to them. When you have an expertise, you're not a political commentator, you're given a wider berth on this show than when you're just somebody who's spouting off. But sometimes I'll fight with people that are called doctor, too. I just, it's Friday, and it's World Wildlife Day, everybody. I want to talk about saving the pandas and stuff. Um, there are some examples, by the way. I believe, uh, I think it's black rhinos have made a tremendous uh, comeback. Um, black rhinos are, I, I think it's the black rhino. I forget, it might be the white rhino. I don't know. It's one of the rhinos. And actually, hunting has played a large role in it, uh, licensed hunting, because the uh, the people that actually are paying for those hunts, it then pays for the preserves for the rest of the animals, and they're very expensive to get it. But then you get into the whole thing of you're hunting big game, and I know that becomes uh, uh, that becomes a big virtue signaling issue, very contentious. So there are success stories with conservation around the world, and uh, I would want to know more. We're going to mitigate climate. I don't know mitigate climate change because all the animals are dying. I mean, well, if the if the ice caps are melting and there's more water, isn't that good for the fish? I mean, not to be that guy, but just strikes me that that's possible. Um, I know that there, there are some problems. You've got the uh, the Patagonian toothfish, for example, which many of you would be familiar with as Chilean sea bass, uh, but it's originally called Patagonian toothfish. It's a 
fish found in the uh, southern ocean, and it is a species of cod. Uh, that's I think it's now a billion dollar or has been as much as a billion dollar fishing industry. And a huge part of it is that in fancy restaurants, nobody wants to order Patagonian toothfish, but Chilean sea bass sounds quite fancy. So people will order that. Just that little name change, a big switch in how much people want to eat it. By the way, if you ever see a monkfish, I feel like you'll probably never want to eat monkfish again. Monkfish is quite tasty too. Monkfish is, looks scary. It looks scary. Uh, but Patagonian toothfish has been over, or whatever, Chilean sea bass, if you want to be that guy, has been uh, overfished, and now they're saying there's far fewer of them to get. So, you know, you can definitely make, you know, the dodo bird, we could sit here, you could make species go away entirely if you uh, go after them too much. But if you're a, fl- a small flightless bird that tastes good, you know, Darwin, I mean, tough st- tough things happen in the world. Uh, got a hit, of, oh, by the way, PETA got upset, I saw this, because they used live penguins for an ad recently. I just think it's amazing. They weren't, like, mean to the penguins. They just used penguins, and Peter doesn't like that, but Peter's a little crazy. Uh, phone lines are open. If you have any thoughts, either about uh, these sessions or Pence witch hunts or even uh, any of our guests so far today in the program, we're wide open here, team. We're going to hit a break, and we'll be right back. We got calls flying in left and right. Let's take them. Kaz on WPTI. What's up, Kaz? Hey, Buck. P1 listener here, enjoying your show. Thank you so much, sir. Shields high. <laughs> um, just a curious question. Why don't the Republicans go on the offense? They're just sitting there waiting for the Democrats to charge them with some inane charge left and right. Why don't they invite the uh, or set up a proser- uh, the special prosecutor to look into the Clinton uh, crime syndicate? Uh, fund or whatever it was or you know, I mean, you know i'll say this cause i've been uh, thinking about this i mentioned this last night uh, the obama administration was obviously concerned uh, about wanting to leave behind information they thought would be damaging about the incoming trump administration so it stands to reason they also would want to do what they could to hide and uh, possibly destroy any information left over that would be useful for the Trump administration if they wanted to enforce some accountability with the Obama administration. That's just a thought. I mean, I don't have any specifics on that, but it is it has been crossing my mind recently. Usually administrations don't want to go back and uh, relitigate the the previous administration for obvious reasons. I mean, we don't want this to turn into one of those third world countries where nobody ever wants to give up power because when you do, you know, you and your whole family end up going to prison and and that that just raises the stakes all around. Uh, But by the same token, that's already that seems to be happening or it has happened with the Obama administration trying to make things so difficult for the incoming Trump administration. So uh, I I don't have an answer to you as to why they don't go on offense. But I I agree with you that that would be another way that they could approach this, because this is this is a siege against this White House. This is uh, this is an all hands on deck situation. Or, or at least open a probe into who made the leaks, an official investigation. I think they are doing that. I think they are doing that. I'm sure the FBI is. But the problem is that the pe- people who have access to TS, to top secret information, are generally, unless they're Hillary Clinton and they think the rules don't apply, generally not so stupid that they leave a trail of their leaks. So, I mean, think about it this way. If it's a phone, conver- if it's a phone conversation between a former White House employee and a member of the a media saying, look, we got Flynn on tape, uh, this is what he said— 
unless somebody made a recording of that, it, it you can't prove anything, right? So it's leak investigations are not easy. Well, I, I understand the political consequences of pursuing a former candidate or uh, political person. What then if the Trump administration simply speeds up their um, – like the uh, travel ban, or they – I definitely think they should rescind that um, – presidential order that allowed the uh, information to be spread amongst all the uh, departments or, or other agencies. I just think they just, they're they sitting back waiting and taking it. I just like to see them get more offensive. Well, you know, Trump, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, Trump is definitely willing to be offensive. He's willing to go on offense. So I, I think that it's just a question of you know, if he spends all of his time fighting against the media, nothing's ever going to get done, right? So there's there's got to be a balance struck here. I'm hoping that there'll be some policy initiatives that are enacted in the next couple of weeks that will breathe a, a little or will will put a little wind in the sails of the administration. But again, we'll have we'll have to see. But uh, cause, uh, thanks for calling in, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, M- Matt in Alabama, WDAK. What's up, Matt? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks, Matt. What's up? I'm just going to touch bases with you on some of the health care stuff and, and why it's so important to Americans and people to actually understand. I'm a self-employed person. Uh, wife went part-time where she worked, dropped group, went to individual plans. And like you said, it is a train wreck. Uh, started out uh, right before they passed the Affordable Health Care Act. And we had our own insurance and individual, Alabama Blue Cross and Blue Shield. and uh, had their best plan, paid 464 for a wife, a child, myself, I dental health, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Great, great plan for an individual at that time. We lost that through the process of, of quadrupled uh, deductibles, uh, quadrupled uh, premiums, uh, just the host of stuff. Uh, copays going up double, uh, specialists going up triple. Uh, told we had to lose our doctor in Georgia, had to come to Alabama because it was an Alabama plan. Matt, did this get uh, worse it, after after the passage of Obamacare, or is this just cumulative over many oh, years? Ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, it just it progressively got worse. $200 increases every year, waiting to get letters from uh, our insurance carriers, you know, drop us, because they sent out over 30,000 letters uh, across the people of Alabama and dropped those plans. And this is how it affects people like me that are self-employed that try to do the right thing, provide their own health insurance, and, and not live off of a system that is, you know. Right. So you're one of the, Matt, you're, you're one of the people that is getting the short end of the stick here, right? Because you're working and trying to pay your bills and trying to do this the right way. People have asked me just before, even on this show, who benefits from this? Well, if you're Complete. If, if you are a fall within the guidelines for Medicaid, meaning you make below a certain income, uh, I, for, I forget what it is. Uh, it's some percentage of the poverty line. Th- then you're on a, a, a welfare program for your health care. And sure, if Obamacare gives that to you, people tend to say, well, I've got something for free, which is good. And if you're at the lower end of the scale and you're getting subsidized care, maybe you think that's better, too, if you just barely uh, are in the exchanges. But for most people like you who are self-employed, I'm sorry, Matt. Go ahead. We've only got about a minute, though. Who, who, go ahead. Who who pays for the subsidies? That's what people don't understand. You do. You do. That's, uh, that's the point. Paying. You you as somebody in that marketplace, paying. you are subsidizing other people who are not paying full freight, and you're getting less care, and your family is getting less care, and you're paying more money for it. 
because you are subsidizing it. In fact, that is what is going on. Do, that's why it's people, not. But how do, how do people see that that's not going to bankrupt this country? Well, that's why we're, hopefully they're going to repeal and replace this thing, right? But I, I agree with you that this is <laughs> it's, it's going to get bad. But Matt, Shields, hi. Thanks for calling in. Uh, wow, already third hour is here. Freestyle Friday is so much fun. It goes by so fast. Um, 844-900-2825. Some spots are open on the lines. Back in a minute. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. It is fascinating to watch the media try to rehabilitate their treatment of their former treatment of George W. Bush. Uh, he was on the Ellen Show, which I, I do not watch. Uh, I do not have cable, so I do not watch these daytime cable shows uh, like Ellen and, and Oprah. Although I guess she's not on anymore. I don't, I don't know. Or she's on a different channel. But Ellen had Bush on, and, of course, they she, she started out by saying uh, that she doesn't want to make this political. And anytime somebody who's on TV says, I don't want to make this political, you can bet that there's going to be a very political statement that follows that. And she was uh, talking to Bush about Trump and the press, and this is what George W. Uh, said. Play 67, please. Um, obviously, the, the media was not, you know, great to you. They're not great to most presidents. The media is yeah, tough. you expect them to be tough. But Trump is raging in outright just a war against all press and not allowing press mm -hmm. to, to do their job, which I think is a very dangerous thing. Well, here, I, I said something the other day, and, of course, the headlines were Bush criticizes Trump. Here's what I believed when Can I was Can we pause that for one second? Can we pause it? Can we just pause it for a second? So not letting the press do their job. Uh, how is that the case? In what way has—and, look, I, she's not a political analyst or a elected member of Congress or something. I get that, but she's got a huge following. I mean, people listen to Ellen— and the, this is the kind of sloppy thinking that I, I do think we should push back on. Not allowing the press to do their job, how? I, ju I just want one instance. Are we going to really talk about the press gaggle that ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and a bunch of others were in, but there were a couple of news organizations that weren't, and it was, that was last Friday. Remember, that was media DEFCON 1. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? It's terrible. Destroying the First Amendment using the First Amendment as paper for the floor while he trains his puppy with it. I mean, it's just people were freaking out about that. It wasn't that big a deal. But here we are. I just want an example of where the press hasn't been allowed to do their job. This is the, an, an amazing and uh, consistent occurrence on the left is that they do things that they're going to get nothing but acclaim for, they take positions that are going to make them feel good about themselves and that all of their friends and everyone around them and everyone in the media and Hollywood and everywhere else is going to tell them they're smart for taking. And they think they're brave for doing it. And, and members of the press seem to want to pat on the back for being so anti-Trump when being anti-Trump is what people in the press for the most part do now. And it's career enhancing and they're going to get big paychecks for doing it if they're in a position to get big paychecks and there's no there's really no risk to them at all but they speak about this like the long dark night of authoritarianism is upon us and it's just it's just nonsense it gets so frustrating it's so annoying 
They're they're really diluted on this issue, but that's where we are. So anyway, so she says that they're not letting do their job. And then Bush, whom is a nice guy, not a brilliant uh, strategist, but a nice guy and, and a lot smarter than the media said he was. But we'll get to that in a second. This is his response to her, which, of course, now is going to be used against Trump. Here's what he said. Play it. Sorry, continue. The nation needs a free and independent press. And the reason why is, is that power can be very corrupting. And we need a press corps to hold politicians to account, including me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I didn't like it sometimes when people said things that, you know, uh, about me. But, you know, that's the job. I always viewed the relationship. I'm going to drop a big word on you. Uh, symbiotic relationship. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Four syllables. Yeah. Don't no, ask he, he's spell. trying to he's <laughs> having a nice he's having a nice chat with Alan. And and what he said, I, I think, and I give a lot of respect to the former president for not doing what we're about to see President Obama, former President Obama do, which is jump right into politics, criticize uh, his successor and uh, just re- refuse to allow the new administration to get comfortable, to take root and to do its thing. Um so, so Bush deserves a lot of credit for that. But I, I do think it's it's fascinating to watch the headlines now uh, coming out, pouring out from all these different media outlets that are suggesting that, you know, they, they really just want Bush back, that they miss the the kinder, gentler days of the Bush administration. Uh, we all remember what that was like. I was working for the CIA during the Bush administration, not all of it, but uh, a good portion of it. And they hated Bush. They were calling, I mean, granted, they weren't calling him a Hitler, but they might as well have been calling him Pol Pot or something else because they did say that he was a war criminal. That was a common refrain. You would hear people on the left say that Bush was a war criminal and, and that he should be tried in The Hague and that there should be repercussions for him. Uh, and Dick Cheney, of course, as well. Dick Cheney, who was running everything from behind the scenes, all for the benefit of Halliburton. It's, it's, oh, it's always a bit... Uh, jarring to me to hear the far-fetched motivations that the Democrats come up with for the most insidious and evil Republican actions. Why, why, would, they, why would they do that? What would the purpose of that be? Um, they don't really ask that question. They certainly don't ask it when it comes to Trump and Russia, um, but they're pretending not to. Oh, you know what, though? I do want, there was kind of a funny exchange here this is just I just want to play this for you because it was amusing where Bush recounted what it was like when Putin met his dog and then he met Putin's dog, a 68. So I introduced Putin to Barney. You remember Barney, the little Scottish Terrier? Yes. The little guy yes. had legs and he kind of dissed him. He looked at him like, you think that's a dog? Anyway, so um, <laughs> a year later, a year later, Putin says, would you like to meet my dog? Laura and I were with Putin in his dacha outside of Moscow. I said, yeah, I'd like to meet, it, meet him. And out comes a giant hound kind of loping across the birch line yard. And Putin looks at me and says, bigger, stronger, and faster than Barney. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it speaks volumes when you listen to what somebody says. And Yeah, so man, when somebody calls out your dog, yeah. ooh, ooh, that's... That is no good. That would not fly. That would not fly with my family. Let me tell you, people are very attached to their dogs. Um, I'm not a. I'm going to say this. I'm not a Scotty person. Just it's just not my. Wouldn't be my choice. But Scotties are fine. I don't know what kind of hound it was that that Putin had, uh, but but clearly a lot of what's been said about Putin that he is this 
machismo, uh, machismo fueled, uh, cult of personality enhanced megalomaniac is true. Right? I mean, that's you can't even. Uh, I'm not just basing on that one comment, but it seems like the the, the personality profile of this uh, de facto dictator now in Russia is is pretty clear. Um, but we should also keep in mind that under the eight years of the Obama administration, how much, how much more caving could be done to Russian interests abroad by an administration than what happened when Obama was in office? I do think that is a fair, a fair issue to to bring into the discussion about how Trump is supposed to be so in the pocket of the Russians. But back to back to Bush. I know I'm jumping around here, but it's Freestyle Friday, so things are going to happen. They are saying that now they're taking this this perspective that um, Bush was not so bad and they kind of miss him and they thought that, you know, he wasn't a terrible guy. They were years ago saying that he was a war criminal, though. So we should remember that. And when you have the kind of rhetoric that you're hearing these days about Donald Trump, it's so overheated and so nasty and hyperbolic, over the line, out of bounds, and just insane that they have to pretend that they don't do this with every Republican, although they pretty much do. That's what I, that's what I wanted to get to here with you. Uh, they, they made Romney, who was as clean-cut and nice and honest and respectable a guy as I think you'd find in politics— they made him seem like a monster that took away people's health care after he gave them cancer and drove around with his dog freezing on the roof of his car and, you know, gave somebody a wedgie in high school or something. I mean, they just it doesn't matter. They'll find some way to engage in character assassination uh, with with uh, Trump, though. I think I mentioned it earlier in the week in the show and I didn't get to it. And I wanted to now. There was a Washington Post piece explicitly, and it was under news analysis, so not opinion, really. It was news analysis, which is this blend of actual newspaper news and opinion and, yeah, uh, saying that Trump is borrowing from—by exposing the crimes committed by illegal immigrants, Trump is borrowing from the Hitler playbook. It explicitly says this. I mean, I'm not— I'm not uh, going beyond what was in the headline here at all. I'm not going beyond what was in the piece. And this writer for the Washington Post goes into the details about how during the uh, you know, leading up to uh, the Holocaust, there was all this anti-Jewish propaganda put out by the Nazis. And they talked about the, the crimes committed by uh, by Jews as it as though it were um, in, in, inheritable or inherited. And this was just a genetic feature of of being a, one of the Jewish people with the crimes committed. I mean, the most vile, untrue and horrific propaganda imaginable leading to an extermination of 11 million people, 6 million of them Jews. There are serious newspapers, the probably the second most beloved newspaper in the country by liberals after The New York Times that are comparing Trump listing crimes committed by illegal immigrants or telling his uh, executive branch to do that to Nazi Germany. This is so uh, indefensible, intellectually sloppy and honestly outrageous, but it's becoming normalized. Trump Hitler comparisons aren't a fringe thing. There were Bush Hitler comparisons. There were uh, people that were 
And actually, I remember there were uh, speeches at my school when I was in college given by some professors about how we, we were descending into fascism and Nazism under the Bush administration. But that's college professors. I mean, they're, they're, they're loons. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. But the reality here is when you line these two things up, not only, of course, do you not have the mass extermination of a group of people in the most horrific circumstances imaginable uh, at all, at all, at all, right? That's, that's not occurring now. But just this notion that Trump is borrowing from the Nazi playbook, which is now a talking point that self-satisfied and supposedly serious journalists will spew out there. They'll say it on TV. They'll write it on Twitter. Oh, he's taking from the Nazi. I saw a piece in Rolling Stone about this. Not that anybody should take Rolling Stone seriously. I hope that UVA Fraternities moving its location to uh, wherever the owner of Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner, has his beach house. Um, but they, they wrote about it in Rolling Stone. Oh, it's borrowed out of the Nazi playbook. Well, if listing the—first of all, illegal immigrants are not a race— so you have to start there. So to say that this is inherently a racist act is to ignore that there are people who are illegal immigrants, uh, who are illegal aliens who are in the country from countries all over the world. And then on top of that, the FBI already gives breakdowns of crime by race. This is you can, statistically you can go see this online. The FBI and they've been doing this for decades. But that, that, I guess, we've just gotten used to as a way of they're trying to look at crime data and they want to know what's going on. And you, you can go look at it, FBI.gov. But illegal aliens, that's that's too far. That's Nazism to publish those that information. Uh, and I just wanted to sh show you that, you know, now they're going to say, oh, well, it's we're just saying this about Trump. It, we didn't do this before. That's a lie. They were making Bush Nazi comparisons and Bush as Hitler compared. But it was a little more fringe. I will say that. But they were they, there was Bush derangement syndrome. That was a very real thing that existed for years and years under the Bush administration. But now with Trump, it has become, as as the left likes to say about things, normalized. It's not just the left progressive fringe that makes these Nazi comparisons. It is major newspapers. And this is really damaging to any political discourse that we could have. Uh, how can we, how am I supposed to take the, the same people that are saying that Bush is a I mean, sorry that uh, Trump? Well, they said it probably then too. Trump is borrowing from Hitler's playbook uh, by public by having his administration publish the crimes of illegal aliens. Those same people then turn around and want to tell me that I should believe them that there's some grand conspiracy involving the Russians that there's some terrible uh, national security vulnerability that we have been exposed to because. Of the Trump administration, uh, and I'm and I'm supposed to take this on faith. They have no evidence, but I'm supposed to take this on faith. Why Why would I do that? Oh, because if I don't, I must be part of the Hitlerian plot to destroy America that Donald Trump is running. And it's just, uh, how am I supposed to take these people seriously? Well, I, I don't. I don't. We got Don in Delaware on WILM. What's up, Don? Hey, how you doing, Buck? Good. Thanks for calling. Uh, I've got a little different perceptive on this craziness with the Russians. I think while all this is going on, I think a lot of it is meant to scare the average person as far as this big bear coming down and war and all that kind of stuff. And I think the Chinese and the maniac uh, leader in North Korea are laughing because, meanwhile, while we're paying a little attention to them, they're building up their uh, military as is evidence of the news about China putting artificial islands out there with silos and building up their navy and the kook in North Korea using gases to kill his opponents and so on and so forth. So my prediction is this, that somewhere down the road, 
I predict that the United States and Russia will be allies against China and North Korea in a war. Huh. Well, uh, it's quite a quite a prediction. Uh, by the way, the it's not just uh, Kim Jong Un ordering the execution of his half brother with VX gas that was in the headlines recently. Uh, also, uh, some some senior uh, North Korean officials were executed with anti-aircraft guns just just for effect. They decided to use anti-aircraft guns. So Kim Jong Un is is a straight up uh, straight up psycho, uh, and he has nuclear missiles and they have chemical weapons and and lots of ways of of hurting the international community and and hurting us. And as to your your point about uh, what's going to happen. Going forward with these countries, China is expanding out. I mean, China wants to go. China's already a regional power, wants to be a global power. But to do that, they have to punch through the literal states that are on its periphery that we currently use. We don't really say it this way, but we use as a means of boxing China in. So the Japanese uh, or Japan, rather, the Philippines, uh, South Korea, these are all states that we look to be a buffer against Chinese ambitions, but that's why the South China Sea is so important. Obviously, also for trade, and there's a lot that there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of yep. things that are happening there. But by by expanding their mil- uh, by pushing their military footprint out onto those islands, it's just moving the goalposts a little further for them, and it's going to they're going to be bumping up into these other states, and it's. Uh, it's not inconceivable yeah, yeah, that things could get really could get really ugly very quickly. I don't know when or how fast, but uh, China's yeah. China's got, uh, got a big military in search of some, you know, nationalistic wins. Uh, that's that much is for sure. And they, they're buffer states, so have very little military power. Oh yeah, I, well I think that's Japan, what... Philippines. I mean, uh, you know, we found out in Korea that uh, wouldn't take long to wipe them out. I'm sorry, we With found China. out where. In Korea, we found out how the Chinese can use mass to come over the border and whatever and so forth, so on and so forth. You know, Japan's not been allowed to rebuild, and Philippines never have had really strong military, and uh, so there's not too much of a buffer around. It around is interesting China. that we sell we we talk about a one China policy with Taiwan and that call to the uh, Taiwanese premier. Uh, by Trump early on uh, got a lot of people's attention, but we've been selling the Chinese, I mean, sorry, the Taiwanese uh, advanced missile systems to deal with Chinese aggression. So, you know, we're, we're, we're got a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, Dom, we got to, we got to hit it into a break now, but thank you for calling in from Delaware. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast of this show. Uh, even if you're a live listener, uh, you can listen to the whole show and listen to it whenever you like. You can share it with friends. I heart radio app has it. You can also go on iTunes, type Buck Sexton with America Now in, and then click subscribe. And uh, it is like a vote of confidence for the show. Every every one of you who does it, you are giving me a high five from wherever you are. So please uh, do me that favor and give that a shot. Uh, team, we've got another Freestyle Friday guest coming up. Ooh, it's going to be a surprise because we keep it spicy on Friday in the Freedom Hut. Be right back. We've already had a uh, specialist in space travel, an expert in species die-off. Now it's time to talk a bit about robotics. I'm sure you've seen the Terminator movies, lots of other movies out there, including the, I think, pretty terrible I Am Robot with Will Smith. Isn't that what it's called? I am. Yeah, there's also I Am Legend or I Robot. I Robot, sorry. Gosh, come on, old man Sexton, get it right. 
Um, that movie was not good. But there's a lot of movies about robots and the future and what's going to happen. And it is getting pretty interesting to see what they can do. I don't know how many of you have already seen the video. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. Uh, Boston Dynamics, which is a subsidiary of Google, put out a video of a robot called Handle. Stands over six feet tall, can go nine miles an hour and jump four feet vertically. And uh, it's pretty amazing what this thing can do. How far are we from the T-100 or the T-1000 or T-800? I forget what the models are from the Terminator movies. Let's talk to somebody who actually works with this stuff. We got Dr. Scott Koziel. He's assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at Baylor University. Dr. Koziel, great to have you. Hey, thanks, Buck. My pleasure. So this Boston Dynamics robot was called by the CEO, and anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm telling you, go home, check it on YouTube. You'll be like, whoa, uh, nightmare-inducing, that was a quote, and unlike anything we've seen in robotics before, what is so different about this, and what is it telling us about capabilities for robots right now? Yeah, well, what's kind of interesting about this robot is it's got feet that are made out of wheels. So it's got wheels for feet, and it can... It can bend its legs, and it can also bend its waist. So that's kind of a, a unique thing. I mean, what's, what's special about that is it can use these bending moments to, to throw its weight around and still maintain balance. So that's kind of a unique thing that you don't see in a lot of humanoid robots that can, uh, that can do this and, uh, and also do it really quickly. So it's moving fast. It's always stabilizing itself. Now, Dr. Cozio, how far are we from robot? Because right now we, we've gotten used to drones being a, a, part, of, a part of modern warfare uh, lethal drones are flying in the skies over any or any number of places, and and I'm assuming people don't often think about this, but the world is going to be very interesting when these get cheaper, easier to build, easier to control, and other countries begin using them too, uh, because it changes the calculation for kinetic strikes when a country doesn't have to risk a pilot and can just put a drone up in the sky and shoot a missile at somebody. We haven't yet seen though land-based drones used in warfare in the same way or w- with the same frequency. Uh, how far are we from that kind of an application here? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, I think we're still a ways off. Um, so there's a lot of things that robots can do, and certainly you're right that they're becoming more ubiquitous, especially with cheaper sensors, um, gyroscopes, accelerometers. We can make these um, MEMS, they call it, so microelectrical mechanical systems that can sense. And so that's that's been a really big driver in robotics as far as getting the cost down and, and some amazing things we can do. But we're still kind of a long ways from 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 my robot, from from uh, the Terminator actually being able to to outwit humans at this point. There's still yeah, a lot. no, I, I know, I know that's a ways <laughs> off. But I, I, how we've got drones that can run alongside—I mean, not drones, robots that can run alongside human beings. If, if you right. put a if you put a camera system on it and some sort of offensive weapon, a, 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 a you know machine gun, a, some sort of missile launcher. The technology, it seems, already exists for land-based drone warfare. We just don't see it used yet. I mean, they right. certainly, I've yeah, seen it used yeah. in, uh, for, uh, in bomb disposal teams. They use robots that aren't particularly advanced, but they can do some pretty interesting stuff. Right, yeah. Yep, that's definitely one uh, benefit, like uh, the pack bots and things that iRobot is uh, making and, and helping troops. It's definitely a great thing. Um, yeah, I think we're still kind of a long ways from, for one thing, you have to power a robot, so you have to think about how my uh, what kind of power source am I going to use to put these things out in the field? So that's something you always have to think about. Um, and then there's just sensing and thinking and acting um, 
all those have to kind of work together and to, to make something that's sort of feelable. So, but when am I when am I going to have my own little personal like uh, you know Jeeves the Butler as a robot? You know, <laughs> when does that happen for me? I'm thinking about the Jetsons <laughs> now, where I got somebody. You know, I I need to clean up more after myself. It'd be great if there was a, a little dude I could just say, hey, go vacuum, and like if if Siri combined with one of these Boston Dynamics robots, and now all of a sudden I've got somebody making flapjacks for me and, you know, vacuuming and doing fun stuff. Well, you, you are in luck because they do have robot vacuums that you can buy anywhere from 100 yeah, bucks. Yeah, but, but I don't, wait, like, I mean, like, a little more than, I'm talking about, we're talking about cleaning some windows, <laughs> lifting up the lifting right. up the mattress, you know, a, a little more ornate than just uh, a, a little light dusting. I'm not, I'm <laughs> right. not sold what yet, Dr. Koziel. <laughs> well, it's really, you know, you got to keep me in my career, so we, we don't want to, like, you know, get it too fast. But, um, yeah, no, we're still a little ways, but, you know, the things, like, that we can do with localization, um, some of these more expensive robots, for example, can can use this thing called SLAM. So it's simultaneously mapping your house and figuring out where it is within your house at the same time. So it can figure out where it's been and what it's cleaned. and um, So that, you know, step by step, we're kind of getting to that place. Are there are there medical applications, by the way, for uh, you know the the kind of technology we're seeing uh, used by Boston Dynamics here? I mean, I've seen some at least mock-ups of how surgeons might be able to use mechanical arms, and it's all controlled through AI. And it, it, are, is that already happening, or is that going to be happening soon? Right. Yeah. So there's the Da Vinci surgical system. So it's sort of this robotic um, assistive device for doctors. Now, when you start talking about telemedicine and you have a doctor maybe in the States and operating overseas, you have a delay to think about as well. So the extreme case is if you send a, a message to a Mars rover, right, it's going to take a long time to get that message back there and back. So in a, in a smaller scaled version, there is some delay with um, transmitting signals and sort of this feedback that doctors need. So I, I know people are working on that, and so hopefully they'll have that figured out. Um, in the future, probably more than your future. Best robot movie, Doc. We've been asking all the experts tonight what their favorite movie and their area of expertise is. So, best robot movie is what? Best robot. You know, I'm a big fan of Iron Man. It's it's kind of more about AI, but you can kind of still think about it as a robot movie. Solid choice, Doc. Iron. High five on that one. Yeah. It's Dr. Scott Koziel's assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering at Baylor University. Doc, thanks for calling in. Great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me tonight. Have a great night. Uh, team, I'm going to hit a break, and we're just going to close out with a whole bunch of fun stories that I want to talk to you about. So stay where you are. I'll be right back. Just saw this come in, team, from our friend Guy Benson, uh, townhall.com politics editor, who uh, was on the show what was earlier this week, and or definitely on last week. Um, he has an excerpt here from a story that of the two meetings that Jeff Sessions had with the Russian ambassador, the first came at a conference on Global Partners in Diplomacy, where Sessions was the keynote speaker. It was sponsored by the U.S. State Department, the Heritage Foundation, and several other organizations. It was held in Cleveland during the Republican National Convention. The conference was an educational program for ambassadors invited by the Obama State Department to observe the convention. The Obama State Department handled all the coordination with ambassadors and their staff, of which there are about 100 attendees at the conference. Apparently, after Sessions finished speaking, a small group of ambassadors, including the Russian ambassador, approached the senator as he left the stage and thanked him for his remarks. That's the first meeting, and it's hardly an occasion, much less a venue, uh, when a conspiracy to interfere with the November election could be hatched. That's all a quote from 
uh, guy's Twitter account here. He's posting this news story, uh, an excerpt from it. Uh, I just want to note that as we find out more about these Russia contacts with Session and as we find that they are uh, innocuous or understandable, justifiable, you're not going to get there's never any way to unring the bell here. All the stories about how the Kremlin is controlling the Trump administration and there's this massive conspiracy that goes to the very, very top. They won't stop. They're not going to say that that's they're going to rethink that. They are completely invested in that narrative. So just wait for next week. There'll be more fights over this, and I'm sure they'll find that somebody who once worked for Trump somewhere also had a friend who went to Russia, and you know they're just going to be dredging up whatever contacts they can, anything that they can find in order to keep— they just got to keep the narrative alive at this point. Because people come to their conclusions. If you don't like Trump, you think he is a Kremlin agent or a Kremlin stooge or working alongside the Kremlin, whatever. If you don't like him, there is a high likelihood you will believe that story. If you hate this administration, you're looking for a reason to hate the administration beyond all the ones they've already given you, I might add. Because they've already been saying that he's a sexist, a racist, a bigot, a homophobe, all that. But now on top of that, it has to be that he's a he's a traitor. They've gone for the ultimate. I mean, they, they haven't called him a a murderer yet, and I think it's interesting that we should note that they were calling Bush a murderer before Trump. Bush lied, babies died. You will recall that. Um, you will recall that sound. I mean, that uh, phrase. I'm sure. And all the stupid left wing protesters out there. That was one of their favorites. All right. I wanted to get off the political topic because it is Friday, and I know a lot of you're getting ready for your weekend, or maybe your weekend's already already gotten started here. Um, there are some subjects that I have uh, very strong opinions about that I just can't keep to myself. And one of them is over the food fight that the FDA is involved in right now. When somebody says to me that they drink milk, I assume that they're referring to at least a, a, a fluid that comes from the udder of an animal, right? That's, that's how you—for me, that's milk. And dairy farmers— whether it's goat, cow, or any of the others. I will say I drink goat milk sometimes. It's actually quite nice, a little tart. Uh, but dairy farmers are—this is a federal government issue. The FDA has to weigh in on this because dairy farmers don't want uh, all the other, quote, milks to be able to call their drinks milk. Now, I don't know how many of you have strong opinions on this, but i got to tell you, I think that almond milk, which I also have had sometimes, should be called— almond drink or almond juice. I remember learning as a kid that, uh, what was it, um, Yuhu was not in fact chocolate milk, it was chocolate drink. Almond milk should be called almond drink, or if you want to call it almond water, because you have coconut water, to me, you can't, you can't be milk unless it's, it can't be milk unless it's from an animal. And once again, second Ron Swanson quote from Parks and Rec on the show today, uh, skim milk is water that is lying about being milk, which I think is also true. I drink whole milk. That's the way to go. But this is a big fight that the FDA has to get involved in. And this, it's fascinating when you read a little bit of the history of this because it extends beyond milk. There are all these different foods now that people want. They want the association for the substitute kind of food, but they don't want, or they're, or they're not serving the actual food. So milk and sausage are where a lot of these fights have happened. And if sausage can be something that is not meat-based, nothing is sacred in this world anymore. 
sausage is, first of all, a much maligned meat, but people say, oh, you, know, you learn how to make the sausage, and sausage is all the leftover. Good sausage is fantastic. Uh, but it has to be meat-based. You, you can't give me a, so- a sausage that's made out of tofu or uh, what's the other? I'm trying to remember the other kind of th- thing that they put. I can't even. I can't even remember now. They, what? Oh no! Well, chicken sausage is sausage. Oh, I'm being told chicken sausage is not sausage. That's nonsense. If it's from an animal, look. Obviously, the gold standard is is some sort of red meat based product for your sausage but i think chicken sausage is okay um there's some there's some other substitutes that they try to get going but they uh they had a big fight with the fda over a product called wings which was spelled w y n g z wings and they were made to look like chicken wings but there was in fact no chicken in them so if you were eating these wings, uh, I don't know, I don't know what is it, some sort of a substitute product, and and there are fights over this because there's real money at stake. I mean, this is the whole industry. And I gotta say, if I'm an old school dairy farmer and I'm out there milking the cows in the morning, I don't think somebody gets to have their fancy processing machine with their almonds and call that milk. I think it's juice or water. So and this this turns into then that where does the federal government get involved? How, how do they come down on this? So of course the feds uh, get in on this action. Uh, can you call yourself mayo if you are eggless? Because everyone knows mayo is delicious. And there's a brand value in calling something that is not egg-based, that is a substitute of some called mayo. You are not allowed to, in fact. And in the 1880s—this is this fight has been going on forever, by the way. I know we're talking about Patagonian toothfish earlier in the show— um, I'm pretty sure also, uh, is it canola oil used to be called rapeseed oil, and they change, you know, because it doesn't sound, that sounds bad, um, and they changed the name to canola, I think it was canola oil, but it, there used to be an oil you cook with called rapeseed oil, and they got rid of it um, because of the name, uh, say, and much more effective product after that, and the same thing, of course, with the Patagonian toothfish. What you call your food matters to people. It brings up certain... You know, when somebody says, Buck, uh, Applewood smoked bacon, I just start to I start to say that's a fantastic I don't even know what we're talking about. It's a fantastic idea. It's exciting. And we should all get behind it. Um, but back in the 1880s, this is because of some of these fights that have broken out recently. There have been some news reports on this. CBS has done one here back in the 1880s in Wisconsin. The what is it? The the che- the cheese state, right? Isn't it the che- is it known as the cheese state, or am I just yeah? Right. And if you like the Green Bay Packers, you are a cheese head, right? Yeah, that's I, I know some things about some stuff. But there were fights over whether you could over margarine. They wanted to call margarine counterfeit butter. Them's fighting words. I gotta say, I totally agree with that though. Margarine, gross. Not not a margarine guy. Never have been. If you're gonna eat something that looks like butter. It's got to be butter. I don't even go with that. I can't believe it's not butter stuff. I like butter. Um, so you have uh, cow milk. There's a fight over that that's out there. Eggs. You've got to have, I think you've got to have eggs for it to be mayo. And even whether uh, you can, even whether you can call something yogurt or not, based on whether it has a milk protein concentrate or actually yogurt, these are all the fights, the fights that break out, the fights that happen, everybody. So I, I think of the, the nut-based milks that one can have. Brazil nut milk is probably my favorite, but that's a little that's a little fancy. Uh, almond milk is also quite good. So the federal government gets involved here, and they tell you what you can and cannot say 
about your food. I, I'm somebody who just always tries to fall on the side of, I, I kick it old school. The way that it has been, all the stuff that we have been eating for a long time, and I'm not strictly paleo. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, all the stuff that we can grow or that comes from an animal, that's what we want to be eating. This chemical-based stuff for me is, I just have, I have misgivings about it. And I, I do not like the association of things that are tofu-based, pretending that that is somehow a meat patty. No, it is not. It is perhaps better used as a sporting implement like a hockey puck than for human consumption. Uh, I've just never... People have tried to sell me on veggie burgers. I have tried many a veggie burger. Let me tell you, there's nothing burger about that compressed whatever it is. Uh, I, I just... It's not how I get down. Vegeta You know, I'm celiac, so I can't eat gluten. I otherwise get very sick. So I'm sensitive to people having allergies about different foods and food groups. But, uh, yeah, my, my food talk here, they, they, they throw on the... The team's throwing the music on early. This is what happens when I go off the rails. Uh, but I just, the whole vegetarian thing, I don't know. I don't I don't get, I don't know how people do it. I mean, I'm not judging. I mean, maybe I'm judging, but I'm not judging. I don't know how anybody I don't goes that route, though, because meat is delicious. And you know how I fired up I got about Trump ordering a steak well done and eating it with ketchup? That's like sacrilege. All right, team, that's it for my little food lecture today. Uh, eight four. Wait, no, you can't call in. We're at the end of the show. Download the podcast, though, please. iTunes, uh, type in Buck Sexton with American Out. Click subscribe. Share it with a friend. I'll be back with you, obviously, every day next week. Same time, same place here in the Freedom Hut. Have a great weekend, everybody. Shields high.